The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I hope you do, and I want to invite you to open up to the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. I titled this morning's message, A Defining Moment. A Defining Moment. When we think of the presidencies of certain men, we often think of a few defining moments over the course of their presidencies. For example, although none of us in this room were alive at the time, we can't help but think of the Gettysburg Address when we think of President Abraham Lincoln. The four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Seventy years later, when we think about the presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, we may again remember from history, most of us, not from uh, live hearing this, but from history, we we might remember the opening line of the first of his four inaugural addresses when he said, So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. A defining moment in his presidency. More than half a century later, there was another defining moment. And most of you know my mom is born and raised in Germany. It makes me half German. And so this particular speech, this next speech, it captured my imagination in a special way. It, it happened, the speech happened while I was a young adult. It was just a couple of weeks before my 21st birthday. Uh, June 12, 1987, President Reagan stood before the Berlin Wall with a famous Brandenburg Gate in the background. And he said... Behind me stands a wall that encircles the free sectors of this city, part of a vast system of barriers that divides the entire continent of Europe. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek the prosperity of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. And then there was a a thunderous applause when, when he said open this gate. It lasted for every bit of 25 seconds, which doesn't sound like a lot, but in the midst of a speech, that's a long time. And as the applause began to die down, President Reagan said those now famous words, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And the crowd went nuts again. It was quite a moment. It was a defining moment in his presidency. And then a decade and a half later, I'm sure that not many of us will soon forget President George W. Bush's famous bullhorn speech when he visited Ground Zero in Manhattan three days after the 9-11 attacks. He stood there on the rubble with his arm around a firefighter. The rescue workers were shouting encouragement to President Bush, and he said in part, as they were shouting to him, he says, I can hear you. The rest of the world can hear you. And the people who knocked down these buildings will soon hear you as well. Now, Whether you like these presidents or not is secondary. Whether history will judge them well or poorly, again, is secondary to my point this morning. 
My point this morning is that these moments help define their presidencies. We simply cannot think about the presidency of Ronald Reagan without thinking of those words, tear down this wall. They were defining moments. And in our text today, we're going to look at a similar defining moment for King Saul. And so if you're in 1 Samuel chapter 11, say Amen. Alright, I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's only 15 verses. Follow along with me, please, as I read. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all of your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The leaders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, you tell us that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we count on that fact this morning. As we read in ancient texts of ancient events, Lord, help us to recognize the importance of this even in our lives today. So as I speak, Father, I pray Your Spirit would accompany my words and that You would 
do Your work in and through us. Father, if there's anybody here today, even one person who does not know You through Your Son, Jesus, if there's even one person who does not believe in Jesus, Father, that today may be a day of salvation for that individual. For those of us who do know Jesus, Lord, I pray that today You would strengthen us and encourage us through Your Word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who are note-takers, my central idea for this message this morning is God sends His Holy Spirit to empower His people for ministry. God sends His Holy Spirit to empower His people for ministry. And I have three points I want to make this morning. First point is we see a rising conflict. A rising conflict. This is in verses 1-5 through five if you're following along in the text. Our text begins with a a rather simple word, a word that we might be tempted just to overlook and think, ah, it's, it's not an important word. It begins with the word then. Again, we, sometimes we just read right over it. But we dare not read right over it. It's an important word. It's there for a reason. Then is, it's an adverb. It's a, a linking word. It's a note that den- denotes a movement of time. So this happened, then that happened. And for our purposes today, that word links all the events that happened at the end of chapter 10, which we looked at last week, with the events that are happening in our text today, chapter 11. And here's why that's, that's important for us to understand. The final verses of chapter 10 show us that the people came to recognize Saul as their king. You know, there, there were lots cast and people said, okay, Saul, he's the one who's king. But as soon as they recognize him as king, everyone is sent to their own home, including Saul. And so Saul really, he doesn't perform any kingly type of duties or a kingly type of deeds in chapter 10. And so we might say that at the end of chapter 10 that he's king in name only. So yes, he's the king, but he hasn't done anything kingly, all right? And so that's going to change drastically in our text today. And then we also remember that at the end of chapter 10, or how chapter 10 ends, in that last verse, we're told... That there was, this is verse 27 of chapter 10, that there were some worthless fellows who despised Saul and his kingship. And today, we're going to see how that, how that fact ties in, why that's important in our text today. And so, in verse 1, we begin with this then. And we're introduced to this character. This guy named Nahash. He's an Ammonite. The text doesn't explicitly tell us, but we know from archaeological finds in this. We know Nahash was the king of the Ammonites. But you might wonder, who are the Ammonites? Why, why are they important? Well, the Ammonites are distant cousins of the Israelites. You may recall from your biblical history that Abraham has a cousin. His cousin's name is Lot. Uh, and Lot decides to settle in the land of Sodom. Some angels come and tell Lot that he needs to flee the city because God is going to destroy the city. This is Genesis chapter 18. You need to flee the city. And so after some convincing, Lot and his wife and their two daughters, they flee from Sodom. Lot's wife, she looks back and to see the destruction, she turns into a pillar of salt. And so now it's just Lot and his two daughters. And they're by themselves, all by themselves. Nobody else around. And so the daughters begin to wonder, you know, how are we going to have children? It's just us and dad. 
And so they come up with this crazy idea about how to have babies. And for the sake of young ears who are in the audience today, I'm not going to share those details with you. But if you want to study those details, you can find them in Genesis 19. But long story short, both daughters get pregnant. They have babies. The older daughter gives birth to a boy, and that boy ultimately becomes the father of the country or or the people group known as the Moabites. And the younger daughter gets pregnant. She gives birth to a boy, and that boy becomes the father of the nation of the Ammonites. Okay, so this is where the Ammonites come from. They're distant cousins of the Israelites. But it's important that we understand there's no love lost between the two groups. And in the days of Saul, the territory of the Ammonites shared a border with the territory of the Israelites. The Ammonites were immediately to the east of Israel. And so in verse 1, we're told that Nahash, he goes up against this city, Jabesh-Gilead, and he besieges the city. Now, Jabesh-Gilead is a Jewish city just east of the Jordan River, like kind of on the border between the two territories. And the people of Jabesh, they they immediately recognize they're outgunned, so to speak. And so they ask for a treaty of peace. This is all in verse 1. And they promise to serve Nahash. And then notice with me, look in your text with me, notice how Nahash replies. This is verse 2. He says to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all of your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. (laughs) Now we might read that and think, Nahash isn't really offering very friendly terms of a treaty here, right? Or, Or we might read that and think, I don't think Nahash really wants peace. And if that's what you're thinking, on both accounts, you're right. Nahash doesn't want peace. He wants to bring disgrace to Israel. That's what he wants. And so we see this rising conflict between the Ammonites and the Israelites. And, and listen, just as a, as a quick side note on modern day cultures, the story we're reading today, this happened 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago, there was hostility between the Israelites and the other people who lived in that region of the world. Now today, 3,000 years later, we watch the news, we hear on the news about hostilities between the Israelites and the people of that region. Here's my point. What's happening right now in the Middle East with Israel and all these other countries, this isn't a new problem. There have been people who have wanted to wipe Israel off the earth for many thousands of years. Back to our text. Enough enough political stuff for today. Nahash says, let me gouge out your right eyes. Then we can talk peace. And the people respond in verse 3, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically they say, you know, give us some time. Give us some time where we can find, uh, we can go to find some help, and if we can't find help, then we're going to serve you. Now, if your mind works anything like mine, you might be wondering, why would Nahash give them seven days to go to find help? I mean, it appears that Nahash already has them on the ropes. They've already said we're willing to surrender. Why doesn't he press harder? Why doesn't he crush them while, while he can? Well, here's the answer. He doesn't press harder because he's arrogant. He's arrogant. Let me, let me explain. And remember from the end of verse 2, his goal is to bring disgrace on all Israel. He's not interested in bringing disgrace on part of Israel. He wants to bring disgrace on all Israel. So it's not really a win for him just to bring shame on Jabesh Gilead. That would be like winning the battle and losing the war in his own mind. He has bigger goals in mind. And so he knows. He recognizes. He says, yeah, I know you're going to go try to find help from all over Israel. 
And he's, he's arrogant enough to think that he can defeat all of Israel. And so Nahash, he sees this as an opportunity not only to win the battle, but to win the war itself, to bring disgrace on all of Israel. And so the messengers, they go out from Jabesh-Gilead and they make their way to a town called Gibeah. It's about 50 miles from Jabesh. It's the hometown of Saul. The messengers arrive there in Gibeah and they tell the people what Nahash has said. All the people start crying, weeping. Saul, meanwhile, he's in his field with some oxen. He comes from the field. He hears the people crying and weeping. What's, what's going on? And so when Saul hears the news about Nahash and the men of Jabesh, he recognizes, again, there's a rising conflict in Israel. This is setting the stage for what's going to happen next. So that's point one. Point number two is we see divine empowerment. Divine empowerment. This is verses 6 through 11. In verse 6, and verse 6 is the climactic verse of this entire story. Everything centers around verse 6. We're told in verse 6 that the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. Beloved, without the Spirit of God, we can never accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. That was true, and it's true today, and it was true as well 3,000 years ago. Without the Spirit of God, we can never accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. This is why, by the way, Jesus tells us in John chapter 16 that He's going to send us a helper. He's going to send us a Holy Spirit. And this is why Jesus tells His followers in Acts chapter 1 that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. Beloved, we need the Holy Spirit. We cannot do the work that God wants us to do if we don't have the Holy Spirit. Which raises a really, really important question for us today. Now, we're going to come back to Saul in just a moment. But for us today, if we need the Holy Spirit, how do we get the Holy Spirit, right? If it's something you say, hey, you can't do this job unless you have this tool then I want to know, do I go to Lowe's to buy it? Do I go to Home Depot to buy it? Where do I go to buy that tool if I need that tool in order to do the job? Well, the Holy Spirit isn't something we can buy, so where do we get the Holy Spirit? Is He available to everyone? Or is He maybe more restricted to a certain group of people? Well, here's the good news. Every Christian, if you're a Christian today, every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Without exception, every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the passage that Debbie read just a moment ago from Ephesians 1? Here, here's how that passage ends. In verse 13 and 14, it says, In Him, talking about in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Paul tells us that when we hear the word of truth, when we believe in Jesus, at that very moment, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He doesn't tell us that at some time in the future, we will be sealed. He doesn't tell us that at some time in the future, we might be sealed with the Holy Spirit. He tells us at the very moment we believe, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. At that very moment, we receive it. And so every Christian has the Holy Spirit. But we, we do need to be careful here, friends, because 
we can live our lives in such a way as to quench the Holy Spirit. We can live our lives in such a way as that we ignore the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. To grieve the Holy Spirit. To neglect to rely on the Holy Spirit. And so we need to be mindful that we don't do that. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But the fact remains that at whatever point we first believed in Jesus, at that moment we received and we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that raises one more just very brief question in my mind. If I receive the Holy Spirit when I believe in Jesus, at that moment when I believe in Jesus, what does that mean to believe in Jesus? Does that mean, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I mean, I celebrate Christmas and Christmas is all about His birth and that's why I believe. I believe in Jesus. Is that what it means? That's not what it means. But before I get to the Jesus part, can we all agree, can we all agree that, that we're all broken people living in a broken world? I mean, it's true of all of us. I'm not trying to throw shade on you or anything. This is true of all of us. That we're, we're, we're all broken and sinful in such a way that we don't naturally do what's right. We don't naturally do what is good. Rather, we naturally tend to do our own thing, even when our own thing goes against God's plan. That's, that's who we are. We naturally tend toward ourselves. The Bible calls that sin. And sin is the reason that we and the world we live in is broken. Our sin has broken our relationship with God because we were created in such a way that we're to be in relationship with God. But our sin keeps that from happening. Now, this is where Jesus comes in. Jesus is God's very own Son. In fact, Jesus Himself is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. But Jesus isn't broken like we are. Jesus isn't sinful like we are. Not in any way. He never sinned. Not even once. Jesus came in this world to restore our relationship with God. And here's how He did it. You see, all sin, your sin, my sin, all of our sin deserves to be punished. And so we deserve to be punished for our sin. But since Jesus wasn't a sinner, He doesn't deserve to be punished. You tracking with me? All right. We deserve punishment. He doesn't. This is what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve when He died on the cross. And so now when we turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus, we're we're given the life that He deserves and He takes the punishment that we deserve. That's the great exchange. And so believing in Jesus means turning from our sin. The Bible calls that repentance. And turning to trust in Jesus. To trust what Jesus did on the cross. Believing in Jesus doesn't mean believing that He existed or believing that He was a good man. Believing in Jesus means believing that when Jesus died on the cross and God raised Him from the dead, that our sins were taken care of completely in that exchange. Period. It means believing that I don't have to do one thing I don't have to add one thing to the work that Jesus has already accomplished for me. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. Jesus washed it white as snow. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. And friends, if you have never, if you're here today, you've never believed in Jesus, I want to encourage you in the strong. I want to implore you. I beg you to do that today. If you have questions about that, 
come and talk to me after the service. But everyone who believes in Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. That's how it happens now on this side of the cross. Saul lived on the other side of the cross in speaking in time, right? So let's go back to Saul for just a moment. In Saul's day, 1,000 years before Jesus came into the world, God would send His Spirit to certain people so that they could carry out His work in this world. That's where Saul finds himself. So God graciously gives Saul His Spirit. And we're told that the Spirit of the Lord rushes on Saul and He he takes a yoke of oxen, He cuts them up into pieces, and sends all those pieces throughout all the territory of Israel. And he tells everyone, and I'm paraphrasing here again, he says, if you don't come and join the fight, your oxen are going to look like these oxen. That's quite an encouragement, right? How would you, how would you like that? To have? You know, I thought about that this week. I said, I imagine, what if, what if you know, attendance is a little bit down today? What, what if I FedExed a package to all the people who are members of PHBC? And in that package, there were like, cut up animal pieces imagine you so on tuesday this week you get a package on your doorstep from fedex and it's cut up animal pieces in it and there's a note from pastor brian that says if you don't show up to church next sunday this is what i'm going to do to all the animals that live in your house i mean yikes right i i I don't i don't think i would get the same response that saul got Saul Saul had 330,000 people show up when he did that. But why did he get so many people to show up? I mean, today we go, no, oh. I mean, it's just the opposite thing is going to happen. Probably, you know, we're going to have 330,000 people, you know, exit the building and say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Why did that work for Saul? Because the Spirit of God had given him wisdom on how to touch a nerve with the people of Israel. This was exactly the right message that they needed to hear at exactly that time. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that the Lord doesn't use this type of message every time He's trying to draw a crowd, right? He doesn't do this every time. There are other times when He does something similar. But this is not what He does every time He's trying to draw a crowd. But it was the right message at that time because the Spirit of God had given Saul wisdom to know how to speak to his people. And then in verse 9 of this message, or this this message is sent to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. They said, by the time the sun is hot the next day, you're going to have your salvation. You're going to be delivered this time tomorrow. And this message, it gives the men of Jabesh-Gilead confidence to go and tell Nahash, oh, we'll surrender to you tomorrow. That's verse 10, by the way. Of course, they don't plan on surrendering to Nahash. It's just a ploy to confuse him. The 330,000 men are put into three different companies of fighters and they come in and they utterly defeat the Ammonites. Verse 11. They're so badly beaten, in fact, that not two of them were left together. And all of this, I want you to understand, all of this is a result of divine empowerment because the Spirit of God had rushed on Saul. That's point number two. Point number three, our final point, is I want to see kingdom renewal. Kingdom renewal. This is verses 12 through 15. You'll recall what I said at the beginning of the message that at at the end of chapter 10, there there were these worthless men, worthless fellows who despised Saul. 
But at that time in chapter 10, Saul, he's only been named king. He's only king in name only. He hasn't done anything remotely kingly. But now, by this point in chapter 11, after the first 11 verses, Saul has had one of the clearest defining moments of his entire kingship. Saul's victory over the Ammonites was equivalent, if you will, to Reagan's tear down this wall. His victory over the Ammonites was equivalent to Lincoln's four score and seven years ago. It was a defining moment where the people said, yes, this is our king. It helped solidify his kingdom in the early part of his reign. At the end of chapter 10, there were these worthless fellows who despised Saul. Now in chapter 11, in verse 12, we read this. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Well, 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 right? How the tables have turned. One chapter ago, there, there, there are worthless men who are openly despising Saul. And now it's turned such that there are people who are openly calling for those individuals, the ones who despise Saul, they're openly calling for their execution. Now, by anyone's definition, it's a, it's a tremendous change of events. The kingdom is being renewed. Now, it's at this point we get, we get a, a little glimpse into Saul's early character. I want to differentiate, by the way, between his early character and his later character. It's not going to take us long in the book of 1 Samuel to get to his later character. But early on, there were some objective, objectively good things that Saul did. And here in verse 13 is, is one of those objectively good things. Look with me. Saul has people, they're, they're openly calling for the execution of his enemies. Now one might think, okay, this is a good thing for a king, right? Let's get rid of all of my enemies. Let's get rid of those worthless fellows and then I can get on to the business of being a king. But Saul says, not a man shall be put to death this day. A very bold, a very clear statement. But I want us to see the reason for that statement. Look with me there again in verse 13. He says, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. You see, right away Saul knew it wasn't because his skill that the Israelites had won the battle. It wasn't because of the size of his army that the Israelites won the battle. It was the Lord who had worked salvation. It was the Lord who had worked deliverance for Israel. Beloved, we, neither individually nor collectively, we will never accomplish anything of eternal significance apart from the help of the Lord. And when we think about that, even our own salvation wasn't accomplished apart from the help of the Lord. And praise be to God that He is still working in our lives. Praise be to God that we can still depend on the help of the Lord. And this leads the people in verses 14 and following to celebrate the Lord's victory. They go to Gilgal to celebrate the victories. Gilgal, by the way, is, um, is where when the Israelites first crossed over the Jordan after they'd come 40 years out of wandering in the wilderness when they first crossed so near Jericho, that's where Gilgal is. Now, 
The text, though, tells us that the people went there and they made Saul king at Gilgal. And again, you might be thinking, I thought, isn't he already king? What does it mean they made him king? And yes, he was already king. But the defeat of the Ammonites was the moment that defined the beginning of his reign. Think about this like in a more contemporary moment. George W. Bush had only been president for less than seven months when the 9-11 attacks happened. But for better or for worse, his bullhorn speech helped define his presidency. You'll, you'll recall that he won the election by a razor-thin margin. I mean, if you're old enough, all I have to say is the word is hanging chats. And, and you know me, like, wow, that, it was a super, that was a close election, right? And so we might say today, we might say that the day of his bullhorn speech, the people of America collectively came together and made him president. Yes, he was already president. He had been president for seven months. But that speech defined his presidency in the eyes of many. And it's this victory over the Ammonites that helped define Saul's king, kingship. And so they made him king. The people said, yes, this is our man. Well, friends, I want you to know that there is still a king in this world. And his name is Jesus. Now, we often use the language of you need to make Jesus king of your life or make him Lord of your life. I want you to know something. Regardless of what you do, he's already king. All right. He's already king. He is already Lord. It doesn't matter what we do. He is already king and Lord. But there is a sense in which we can come to properly recognize him as our King and our Lord. There is a sense in which we can make Him King where we say, yes, He's my King. If you've never done that, what's keeping you from doing that today? It's the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. What's keeping you from doing that today? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. Thank You, Father, that You sent Your Spirit. And Your Spirit rushed upon Saul and gave him wisdom to lead His people in that moment helped define His kingship before the people. Lord, I thank You that today that same Spirit comes upon everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. Everyone who believes in Jesus today receives that same Spirit. That, that same Spirit gives us wisdom, gives us power to live godly lives before You. So Father, we thank You for that Spirit. For those of us who are Christians here today, Lord, I thank You that we can lean in and depend on the Helper, the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, what a gracious thing that is. But Father, for anyone here today, even one person who's never trusted, never believed in Jesus, Lord, that today, by Your grace, today You would open their hearts and they would believe in Jesus and receive Your Spirit. Lord, this is my prayer in His name. Amen. Please listen to this verse um, of benediction before we go. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. 
Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful Sunday afternoon. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.